Do you believe in miracles? I'm not talking about the sort of events that are just highly unlikely or improbable, like my footy team winning a final. It's been 20 years. I don't have very high hopes for the season ahead. I mean a proper miracle. You know, something that is totally inexplicable except for the intervention of some supernatural power or force. You might know what's probably the most famous of Jesus' miracles. He took water and he turned it into wine. It's pretty good going. Or you might know the time when he took five loaves of bread and just two fish and turned it into an abundant feast for a crowd of thousands. Not bad. Or what about the miracle we just read about at the very end of Matthew's Gospel? You know, the one where Jesus took some depleted, denying and doubt-filled disciples and used them to make disciples of all nations. That's unbelievable. You know, the one where Jesus took the few feeble, failing followers with a foolish message about a man who died on a cross and rose from the dead and somehow transformed the whole world. Now that is a miracle. And today we're going to lean into that miracle. We're going to look at who those disciples were and what Jesus gave them to complete their mission. And we'll consider how on earth the movement that began on that mountaintop became what historian Tom Holland has called the most disruptive, the most influential, the most enduring revolution in human history. And I hope we'll see that the miracle of the disciples making disciples of all nations points us to that other miracle of Matthew 28. The miracle that we celebrate this Easter Sunday and indeed every Sunday. That the Lord Jesus has risen from the grave and that he offers his power and his presence to all who trust in him even today. So firstly, who were those disciples who gathered with Jesus on that Galilee mountain It's pretty clear from Matthew's account that they're not a crack squad of spiritual operatives. For starters, there were 11 of them. Now, you don't need to be a Bible scholar, do you, to know that Jesus was meant to have 12 disciples. But one of them fell away. Judas betrayed Jesus to his death. And so like a team that's had someone sent to the sin bin or given a red card in the first minute of the game, the disciples are depleted right from the very beginning of their mission. But the disciples were not only depleted, it's not like Judas was just one bad apple in a bunch of otherwise faithful friends. It's not like they were better off without Judas, the betrayer. Because all of the disciples, every single one of them, was a denier and a deserter. Most famously, of course, Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. He said, I don't know the man. And all of the disciples, they scattered and fled. They were scared and they hid themselves away in Jesus' time of greatest need. It's not a great track record of faithfulness for these followers, is it? But not only did they deny Jesus in the past, but even there on the mountain, they were doubting him in the present. Matthew says they worshipped him, but some doubted. And of course they did. People don't just come back from the dead. And people knew that 2,000 years ago just as much as we do today. 
And what we see in these disciples is genuine adoration, devotion as they fall at the feet of Jesus. But it's intermingled with real questions, great confusion. And that's the experience of these first disciples. And they take all of that with them as they head back down the mountain to do this mission that Jesus has given them. And their reality has been the reality of every single disciple who has come after them. And personally, I find that quite comforting. Every Christian has a mixed track record of faithfully following Jesus and falling short. Of being devoted to Jesus, but also denying him when the pressure's on. All our hearts are mingled with faith and doubt, with confidence and questions. To put it bluntly, we're all a bit of a mess, (laughs) I heard someone say once, Jesus chooses to use messy people for his mission because they're the only people available to him. And so Jesus tells these depleted, denying, doubting disciples, go, make disciples of all nations. And as he sends them out on their mission, what tools does he give them? What does he equip them with? Maybe some demographic statistics to reveal the most fertile fields of mission in the Mediterranean, that would be helpful. Perhaps some cutting-edge communication strategies, a plan for political and cultural influence. We might even expect Jesus to say, here's my power to do the most incredible miracles. Well, listen again from verse 19. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you baptize them, teach them. That's it. It's easy to miss just how incredible that commission really is. In effect, Jesus says, go, change the world, all you need, a bit of water and some words. You'll be right. In baptism, the disciples were to offer cleansing and new life as a gift from God. That was their message. You are a sinner and you need to be made clean. You're spiritually dead and you need to be made alive. And that classic picture of someone being dunked under the water and raised up again captures what's really happening. They're being united with Jesus in his death and resurrection, receiving the reality and the rewards of all that he has done. And with that new life in baptism was to come a whole new way of life following the commands of Jesus. And what did Jesus command? Did he say, you do you, follow your dreams? You know, a nice uplifting message like that. You know, follow your dreams, go your own way. Not quite. Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. He said, don't just manage your external behaviours that other people can see, but ruthlessly eliminate every trace of hate and lust from your mind and heart. He said, turn the other cheek and give to people more than what they demand of you. He said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, you know, possessions, money, property. Instead, store up heavenly treasure, 
by giving generously of what you have to the poor and the needy around you. The teaching of Jesus is the most brilliant and the most demanding ethical teaching that the world has ever heard. And as the world heard it from these first disciples and as individuals and families and households and whole communities were baptised and taught in the church, the world really was transformed. The number of Christians grew exponentially. There were maybe a few thousand at the end of the first century. By the year 350, more than half the Roman Empire, 30 million Christians. But it wasn't just numbers, it was also influence as the teaching of Jesus shaped what everyone thought was good and right and true. In the Roman world, things like humility and compassion and self-sacrifice and service were considered to be signs of weakness. They were foolish. But now for us on the other side of the Jesus revolution, we know those to be the highest of virtues. Just think about the cross itself. It was the ultimate picture of Roman imperial might and power. It was a God-forsaken death reserved for slaves and the vilest of criminals. But Jesus has turned it into the world's most recognisable symbol of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. We're kind of dulled to that by 2,000 years of religious art and wearing the cross on our necks, but it's just incredible. Now, yes, the church has sometimes tried to complete the mission of Jesus by other means. Disciples have gone out to battle, not to baptise. Or they've taken up swords rather than the words of Jesus. But that has always done the church more harm than good. And the same is true when Christians have taught what Jesus says but failed to live it out. The same is true when the church has you know, shied away from the controversial things that Jesus says about sin and judgment and the reality of hell. Or when they've watered down the teaching of Jesus to make it more acceptable to its hearers. But despite all the church's failings, and there are many, it's filled with doubting and denying disciples, remember. But despite all of the church's failings, the gospel has continued to spread and grow all across the world. Now, our newspaper headlines will tell the story of decline here in Australia and places like that, but the global church is bigger today than it has ever been at any point in history. The church is growing rapidly in Africa and Asia. As that video kind of suggests, did you know that the average Anglican is a 23-year-old Nigerian woman? It's interesting, isn't it? The fastest-growing church in the world is in Iran, And it's growing in the same way that it always has, as people are baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and as they are taught to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. So there's these two realities at the end of Matthew's Gospel. These disciples who look so weak, and a message that looks so weak, armed only with the water of baptism and the words of Jesus. And those two things somehow come together to make a worldwide revolution. And my question is simply, how? How does that happen? Do you have an answer to that question? 
Tyler Vanderveel is a professor of religion at Harvard, and he suggests that any educated person should at some point have critically examined the claims for Christianity and should be able to explain why he or she does or does not believe them. And the great Christian claim that explains the ongoing miracle of the church is a third reality in the ending of Matthew's Gospel. It's the reality of the ongoing power and presence of the risen Jesus. Here's the equation. Weak disciples, a weak message, with the power of Jesus, transforms the world. Did you notice how the instructions of Jesus were sandwiched between two stunning promises? Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus said, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus claims to have sovereign power. He says he is transcendent over and above every force and power in the universe. And he offers his steady presence. He says that he is intimately involved in all the details of the lives of his disciples. And so the answer of Easter is that disciples of all nations is possible by the power and the presence of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. I remember about eight years ago, I was driving through Chatswood. It's just a short drive, and I was listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler on the ABC. And he was interviewing a historian called Diamed McCulloch, and he's an agnostic, but they were talking about the history of Christianity. And I only caught a little bit, but it was about the resurrection. And what I heard has stuck with me ever since. Because McCulloch was saying that as an agnostic historian, he can't really say whether the resurrection really happened or not. But, he went on, what I can describe is the effect it had on people. The Gospels describe people who felt defeated and bewildered, who couldn't understand why their Messiah was crucified, why he had died. And suddenly, they're not anymore. That's what I can say as a historian, and that is what has been happening ever since. There's this sense of empowerment that comes through the message of the resurrection. Now, what's more likely, that those 11 scared disciples somehow gathered the strength to steal the body of Jesus and somehow concoct the world's most revolutionary teaching, or that the very personal power and presence of the real Jesus, who really does rule the universe, was really active and working in and through those who went out in his name. Jesus, in fact, told his disciples before he died exactly what was going to happen. He told a parable. He said, my kingdom is like a little seed, small and unimpressive, but planted in the ground, it will grow to be a huge flourishing tree. Later on, he told them, I will build my church. And we've seen in history that Jesus is true to his word. And so the invitation of Easter is simply embrace the miracle. Embrace the miracle that the Lord Jesus is alive and kicking, that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. You know what that means? That means that the future is not in the hands of the human person who has the most power at any given moment. It's not in the hands of random fate or chance. 
The future is not ruled by the cold-hearted laws of physics. The future is ruled by the most warm-hearted, compassionate, humble, faithful, merciful, gracious, wise, just and loving person who has ever lived. The Lord Jesus has got the whole world in his hands. And more than that, he's got you in his hands as well. None of us need to face the storms of this life alone because Jesus has hopped in the boat and he promises to be with us and to guide us safely home. He promises to be with you, to never leave you or forsake you, to never let you down and never let you go. And so if you're here in this room this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, Easter is a reminder to embrace the miracle in every day, moment by moment, in all that you do. It can be easy to read the headlines of decline in the church and feel a little bit depleted, a bit defeated. It can be even easier to look at your own heart and feel the weight of your own failures, to be a bit overwhelmed by your doubts and your questions. But Easter reminds us to turn our eyes away from ourselves, away from the things of this world, and to focus on who Jesus is and what he promises to us. We don't need to panic. We don't need to pursue political power or cultural influence or some cutting-edge new ministry strategy. We just need to keep following Jesus. We need to keep listening to him, keep living out what he teaches And keep telling the people around us that Jesus loves them so much that he died for them and that he lives now to offer his grace. The good news of Easter is that Jesus isn't freaking out. He's not given up on the world. He's not given up on his church. He's not given up on you. He's with you, even to the very end of the age. Or maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're new to this whole church thing. You've been invited along by a friend or a family member today. Or maybe you just know that Jesus has drifted to the periphery of your life. You don't think about him that much. Well, this Easter, embrace the miracle. Christianity is not about having your life all put together. It's not about having dogmatic certainty about every question that you've ever asked. It's certainly not about a program of moral self-improvement. I hope you can see that from the very beginning, Christianity has been about depleted, doubt-filled, denying disciples who nevertheless encounter the person of Jesus and have their whole life completely transformed. This Easter, Jesus offers that transformation to you. He offers his power and his presence to you. He offers his love for you, his very life for you. Most simply, Jesus offers himself to you. For all of us, will we embrace him? Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen.